0: Welcome to School of Movies. Die Hard, and Die Hard 2 Die Harder. This is Die Hard. Back from Back to the Future, we bring you a quartet of reviews on the Die Hard Quad, the first two of which are appropriately placed for the time of recording as Christmas movies. With me once again is Neil Taylor of Gameburst. Hello, Neil. Hello. Also returning after his appearance on our Empire Strikes Back episode, Mike Phillips from the Fanboys Lunchcast. Hello. And sitting in to represent our community today and hopefully lend a hand deconstructing John McClane's first adventure is Matthew Ramsey, better known on the DC forums as Matt Harrier. Hello. Die Hard was made in 1988 directed by John McTiernan whose previous work included Predator and Nomads it was written by Stephen E. D'Souza whose credits also included 48 Hours, Commando and The Running Man but later went on to make anybody?
1: something embarrassing it I guess
0: Several embarrassing things. Hudson Hawk. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I like sure. Hudson Hawk. Okay. Like but The Flintstones? No excuse for that. The second Tomb Raider movie, and the original Van Damme Street Fighter.
1: Ooh. Okay, the worst one is A Crime Against Humanity. <laughs>
0: <laughs> However, D'Souza did not come up with the idea on his own, as I found out today. Even though, apparently, it said it in the uh, beginning... Is it the beginning credits or the end credits? It's at the start of the credits? Every time I watch this film, I just seem to have missed this point. Nothing Lasts Forever was a 1979 crime novel written by Roderick Thorpe. It follows Detective Joe Leland, who is visiting the Claxon Oil Corporation's headquarters in Los Angeles, where his daughter, Steffi Leland Genera, works. While he's visiting, a German terrorist team led by Anton Tony Gruber takes over the building. Leland remains undetected and fights off the terrorists one by one, aided outside the building by LAPD Sergeant Al Powell. The structure and events in the novel are mostly the same as what happened in Die Hard. Most of the characters get renamed, and Gruber's men really are terrorists in the book, not thieves. In fact, technically, Die Hard does have a prequel of sorts, because Nothing Lasts Forever was a sequel to Thorpe's 1966 novel, The Detective, made into a 1968 film starring Frank Sinatra as Leland. Mike, you said you'd read half this book. And You said half, yeah. so that doesn't speak very highly of it. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, the problem is
2: anytime you either read a book first or see the movie first, mm. that becomes your instant, you know, interpretation of what the the material should be. So
0: I wonder how many people had started off reading the book and then sort of film was like, oh, it's nothing like the original. That's ah, rubbish.
2: Yeah, that would be interesting. I, you know, I was 18 when Die Hard came out, and I got pretty obsessed with it. And then I tracked down the novel, and it just it was not nearly as fun. It seemed like it was kind of darker and, and mm. a lot more serious than Die Hard was. And half the fun of Die Hard is that it's peppered with all of these great comedic moments. So yeah. Yeah, I didn't stick with the book. Does anything
0: drastically different happen? Does anyone important die? Not that I recall in the first half. I don't know. It's been a oh, long of course, time. Yeah. Uh, of not Most notable of the name changes was uh, that Hans was called Tony by his men. And the guy whom McLean kills first, uh, Carl's brother, was called Hans, And they switched those guys around. Okay, Bruce Willis had become famous two years previously on the show called Moonlighting, Moonlighting. which I never saw when I was a kid. He shot Die Hard during its fourth season and then went off to do other movies, which left the show cancelled. Any idea what the first films he went on to do were? Quality work here. Look Who's Talking, he starred in as the voice of Mikey the Baby, The Bonfire of the Vanities, Hudson Hawk... And after a string of not especially good films, he ended up in Pulp Fiction, because that's how Tarantino gets you, which reignited interest in him, leading to Die Hard 3. And Willis being propelled permanently from then on to the A-list.
1: I'm just actually trying to think where the Last Boy Scout works into that bit.
0: Um, it was just before Pulp Fiction.
1: Because I thought that was a hit.
0: That was pretty big. If he was sailing high and not doing films like Striking Distance and Color of Night, he wouldn't have been in. (laughs) Striking
1: Distance, I actually like. Color of Night, no, Mm. no.
0: But uh, I mean, you know, after that he did uh, Twelve Monkeys, which is very good, and then The Sixth Sense, which is bloody excellent. As a performance from him, very very good.
1: I actually prefer Twelve Monkeys over Six Sense, but hey, that's just me. Either mine, both of them
0: are good. But um, yeah, I love the Six Sense. John Unbreakable as well.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. no, I mean we
0: could go through the rest of his career. I I love The Fifth Element. John has some pretty major issues with intimacy, shaking his head in disbelief at the canoodling couple at the airport, remaining tight-lipped during Argyle's friendly taxi cab banter during the limo ride, and being positively disgusted when an overly merry male partygoer kisses him, with the background of strict Irish Catholic upbringing coupled with the macho camaraderie of a New York cop. He's not at all familiar with any sensitive side that might exist within him. He hides behind sarcasm and bickering when Holly offers him a bed at her house, despite the fact that he's journeyed 3,000 miles to see her and the kids. He's hurt by her altering her working name back to Gennaro and deals with it in the manner of a 12-year-old. It's clear, though, beforehand, that he and Holly were once very good friends. It was only when the responsibilities and self-sacrifice of a long-term relationship reared their ugly heads that things fell apart. They both wanted something different and both expected the other to give up their goals. Hence, what turned out to be an irreconcilable series of differences.
1: I always thought he was checking that girl's ass out in the airport. But <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I thought. Yeah,
0: the, uh, the tight trousers and the... Uh, I interpreted that more as just like, oh, come on, just you know, get a room. I could be wrong. I do so like some-
2: your comment about uh, John and Holly obviously being friends mm. for a while because the the way that they banter back and forth is is pretty effective and and feels pretty genuine as well. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Also, uh, John being 33 in 1988 means that he would have been a rookie cop in New York during the summer of Sam 11 years previously. And apparently he's been a cop for 11 years. His life for the past decade would have been a series of murder cases in Manhattan, a place filled with life, death and business. In John's eyes, he could not leave that behind for personal reasons, and he was never going to be able to see a good reason for Holly to leave that. And by extension, him A good enough reason anyway, for whatever was out west. Also, the Marine Corps tattoo on his left arm suggests some time spent with the armed forces.
2: Yeah, his uh, his inflexibility and unwillingness to move, like, suggests just how seriously he takes his job and how mm. important he thinks it is. And you know, mm. that ends up serving him well once
0: the, the uh, terrorists arrive. Mm. We don't actually get to see uh, New York or his colleagues until what 1995. That's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah seventy three. Yeah, in part three. See, I kind of like that. I we we'll get to this in four, but when you take him away from what they sort of set up in three, it's like he doesn't have enough contacts in four. John is kind of made by the people that he knows, and he just sort of turns up in four. And he's he's you know, you know I'm John McClane, and
1: uh, I'm here for. Why, why was he there? Why was he in Washington? I think he was picking up. Uh, oh, he was Lucid. sent to pick up. He was sent to pick up the hacker guy. I think. All right. Mm. and ends up saving him and then gets dragged into the events of Four Pointless. Yeah.
0: I mean, it would have been so easy to get some of the other tertiary characters in, even just on the phone. This is an extremely typical late 80s movie. The hallmarks of big business, power suits, skyscrapers, Japanese interests, women working for themselves, European antagonists, divorce, separation, and cocaine-addled executives who believe they won the world is as present here as it is in Wall Street or Bonfire of the Vanities, which also starred Willis. Only here it serves as the backdrop for a simple man with no interest in money to protect innocents caught in the crossfire of greed. It also stands as one of the most significant and influential action thrillers of all time. How many action heroes can you name since this film that seem to have been influenced by John McClane's character or circumstance?
1: Oh, you've got uh, Turbulence. <laughs>
0: Speed. Speed. I can't believe Turbulence is where you went first.
1: the first one that,
0: I was, I know why, You know Think why? It's closest film to Die Hard. Why? Right, it's going to be Lauren Holly in Turbulence.
1: You, well, you know why? Because I'm thinking I've got to watch Die Hard 2 which is, airplane, which is in the airport with airplanes. Yeah. Ah, cool.
0: I see where you got yeah. well, there. Steve there was a whole
2: two. series uh, featuring of, about yeah, movies. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there were a whole series of movies that were kind of like characterized as Die Hard on a plane or Die
0: Hard on a bus or Die Hard under on... Yes, under Siege. Yes, Under Siege on a boat and then Under Siege 2 on a train. I mean, I suppose the, the idea was that the speed took the, uh, the, the, the claustrophobia of Die Hard and, and the feeling that you had to deal with the situation under very, you know, stressful circumstances, but also made it really, really fast. So then it was just a case of, right, well, what else goes fast as opposed to going, well, no, just bring it back to a building. Yeah, you know, this doesn't necessitate a vehicle. I think the uh, the point about
2: Die Hard being like really a product of its time is pretty interesting because, you know, if if you really dissect it, it is so chock full of so many stereotypes and cliches of the mm. era, and yet somehow it totally transcends them. You yeah. know, because there, there there's the whole, uh, you know, the the cop from the gritty streets of a, a tougher area out in the east coming to soft L.A. where the cops don't know what they're doing like Beverly Hills Cop did and, you know, a lot of other movies have done. And it
0: almost cries out to be a buddy movie since obviously written by the guy who wrote 48 Hours. Yeah, and then you also have
2: kind of the stereotype of uh, the higher-ups, the execs, the leaders, the, the sergeants and the captains. They don't know what they're doing. Mm. It takes the beat cop to really solve yeah. the crime. Yeah. That, that
0: whole kind of thing that resonates really with, you know. In fact, the, the guys at the top seem dangerously underprofessional. Yeah. You need the FBI guys. Yeah, Cut the power, <laughs> then we let them sweat, then we bring in helicopters right up their ass. <laughs> uh, other ones that I thought of, Stan Goodspeed in The Rock.
1: Yes, yeah, definitely. And speaking of Nick Cage, Cameron Poe in Con Air. Coming to Con Air, yeah, you have to mention those two, yep. definitely. Jack Traven in
0: Speed, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, how about,
1: I've it's been a
0: little while since I saw it, but um, Kurt Russell in Executive Decision. Oh, yes, good call. Cool. Now, they did a re- We're not doing that as one of these, because there's a million other movies to do first. But Executive Decision is really cool for one aspect, because they bring in Stephen Seagal, and he's got, like, second billing on the poster, and he's, he's there. That it's oh, like yes, you think I'm- it's going to be another Seagal movie, and then Seagal dies, like, 25 minutes in, and you're like, oh,
1: okay. And because you mentioned Executive Decision, I have to say this one. Air Force One.
0: Oh, yes, get off my plane. Yeah, that's kind of die-hard with the president on a plane. and it works sort of it's been a while since I saw
1: it it's got Gary Oldman in I I will literally watch anything with Gary Oldman in
0: yeah I mean people liked seeing the idea of this sort of president who could kick ass
1: so say it's a fair few then
0: yeah I mean he's been pretty influential he's also been fairly influential on video games any particular character spring to mind Snake Snake yes I noticed that while watching this he's crawling around the vents all the time smoking uncontrollably Thorn in the side of these terrorist types.
1: Yeah, but Snake doesn't have as catchy a catchphrase.
0: No. I mean, his catchphrase, if anything, is Metal Gear. Uh, I'm also going to say Nathan Drake. Yeah. It's almost like Nathan Drake owes more to McClane than he does to Indiana Jones. I would say so, yeah. Almost all of the above are painted as men who are simply trying to do their job or make the best of an increasingly dramatic situation. Arnold Schwarzenegger, who defined the 80s muscle man action hero with a limitless supply of bullets and incompetent, easily dispatched hordes of henchmen, was already starting to seem dated at this point. McLean has so few bullets you can count them. He's unprepared and ill-equipped, relying on his training and improvisation rather than feats of physical prowess or firepower. We're never allowed to forget that he's a detective first and foremost, as he's always scrabbling for a way out of or around every situation. We feel for McLean, and when he gets really hurt, so do we. If you can watch the scene where he pulls shards of glass from his ruined, bloody feet without flinching, then you're stronger than most with a heart of granite.
1: I just flinched with you talking about it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, today I was, I was, I was like, ah, I can't even look at this point. He
1: does flinch. He's clearly
0: in lots of pain. He's
3: not a, he's not a Terminator-style hard guy. Yeah, no, he's very, very human. Yeah,
2: and one of the ways he's influenced other movies as well because it, it. comes mm. down to you know if you want us to care and relate to your your hero you have to make him human you have to be mm. willing to kind of beat the shit out of him a little bit yeah by the end of the movie you know when he finally confronts Hans he looks like the goddamn Frankenstein's
0: monster yeah even there. Holly says oh my god when she sees him he is just <laughs> literally just his pants his sorry his pants <laughs> his trousers and and that's it and his watch and unbeknownst to them a gun behind his back Wolverine. The most popular comic book character of the 90s became a man who was continuously hurt and having to heal, battered down and broken by superior enemies. Yet, like Maclean, he was a stubborn, hairy little bastard who continuously clawed his way back. It took Jason Bourne to change the trend towards a more instinctual martial artist hero, and Neo paved the way for uh, the past decade of superheroes. Yet what makes Peter Parker more interesting are his flaws and weaknesses. It's this notion of a hero who could just be an everyday guy you'd pass on the street that makes Die Hard so compelling. You're left wondering what you'd do in every situation John finds himself in, and invariably the answers you keep coming back to are surrender or die. He's not a superhero, but he is a trained professional, and as we are reminded time and again, he's very human. I'd also posit that the term action movie falls somewhat short of the mark when used to describe this film. It was and remains at the pinnacle of a new breed of action thrillers, which balanced the moments of long build-up, characterisation and tension with explosive action sequences." The thinking being that if we're more invested in the characters, then we care a lot more about what's going to happen to them. Effectively, action films for grown-ups had occurred in the past, but this has a lot more in common with Hitchcock than it does with Rambo 3, released that same year. And also
2: moments of comedy. You know, it knows the exact moments when you need to let off just a little bit of steam
0: to ease oh, yeah. the pressure. It does that perfectly.
1: And I think that helps because of just the way Alan Rickman del- delivers some, so many of those lines in that movie.
0: Oh, yeah, I'll be getting to that in a bit. There's a bit in um, Hot Shots Part Deux. Has anyone seen that film? Yep.
4: Yeah.
0: Uh, where uh, Charlie Sheen, effectively playing Rambo, is just firing and firing away with an uh, M60 machine gun at millions of enemies, and they're just they're, they're pirouetting into the water uh, as 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 he blasts away at them. And he ends up waist deep in shell casings.
1: Don't, don't forget the little counter in the corner.
0: Yes, going bloodier than Robocop, bloodier than Total Recall. Both Paul Verhoeven films. Um, but then he ends up just picking up a handful of bullets and throwing them at enemies and they all die. That's what action films were becoming <laughs> in the 80s before Die Hard. That's how ridiculous it was getting.
1: And the scary thing is, and I, didn't, I don't think you mentioned this at the start, Die Hard was originally written as a sequel to Commando.
0: Oh, it was, yes. It was supposed to be Schwarzenegger, but he turned it down.
1: Thank God. Thank yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of Commando, but that is a rubbish film. Uh, I think it was written by D'Souza as well, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. Stick around, Bennett. It's... Uh, no, hang on. Let off some that steam, be. Bennett.
1: Did <laughs> my friend have a blanket? He's dead tired.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's the only film where a man is menaced by someone who looks like Freddie Mercury. <laughs> wears a chainmail shirt. Didn't help him. Big pipe in the chest. We're not doing commando. <laughs> We're not going commando. Aww. Speaking of fighting, the fighting in this is always portrayed as a vicious struggle between two men desperate to live. McLean is not a martial artist and uses the environment around him to injure the men he attacks, mostly relying on grappling and close quarters moves to subdue them. It's very similar to the train fight between Sean Connery and Robert Shaw whom, by the way, I was very nearly named after or the bathhouse brawl in Eastern Promises. The only person in the film who appears an experienced and skilled fighter is Carl, who initially walks all over McLean exacting cruel vengeance for the murder of his brother Tony. John eventually gets the upper hand once again by employing his environment in the form of a ruddy, great big chain. Yeah, and they're, they're really fast, too. Like, they mm.
2: feel authentic because they're not these protracted choreographed sequences, especially the fight with Tony where, it, you know, it's over in a heartbeat. They tumble down the stairs. You expect it to continue, but not his neck has been snapped and he's done for.
3: Yeah, it almost feels like that part's accidental more than
1: deliberate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. stairs.
3: Well, I think it was. I mean, he even says, why did you make me kill you or something when they end up down there? He doesn't want to kill these people. He wants to stop them, but he doesn't Mm. necessarily want to kill them. Yeah. It doesn't fit with his personality. That's not how he wants to finish
0: this. Well, yeah, no, he's a cop. He's he's trying to apprehend him and, and, you know, even use the uh, buzzsaw to distract him so that he could then effectively do the old, you know, on your knees spread them rid you your rights and then I don't know what he was going to do then cuff him with (laughs) cuffs he doesn't have I mean that was going to be a tough one but but yeah another thing I really like is the way that John talks throughout his fight it's not like they're engaging in conversation but when he's, he's beating on Carl at the end he's like I'm going to fucking cook you I'm going to fucking eat you and in uh, in Die Hard Three when he's fighting the guy who's basically Carl again, he's like, You ever see the Adams family? They got a motherfucker on
4: there called Lurch
0: who kind of reminds him of Lurch. I mean he's he's got this sort of squeaky little voice, isn't you know, Schwarzenegger whenever he kills people, kills them and then says a funny thing like, Stick around or surfs up, pal or whatever just it, it, it's, it's like kiss off lines but McLean talks during it as an expression of his
1: frustration McLean talks a lot if you watch that movie yeah. really but yeah. mostly to himself and he comes out with <laughs> they are funny lines yeah come on I kiss your fucking Dalmatian I know what the heck is that? I think my favourite one is in the air vent and it's not to anyone but in particular it's gonna get together she laughs it's <laughs> yes. just so funny
0: that is great. Uh, Easter eggs. Hans purposefully removes the silencer from his pistol to cause more panic in the hostages when he shoots Takagi. When Takagi does not give them the code and is shot dead, Carl slips Theo $5.
1: Yeah, I like that bit.
0: I've yeah. never noticed that before. I was like, whoa, that's cold.
1: <laughs> you just, you can imagine those two making bets yeah. in the background going, he's not going to talk.
0: Yeah. Bet you a dollar. Five Bet bucks. you five. Yeah. Uh, Theo worries me. He's. I think he doesn't actually kill anyone in the film, but he seems to be the most comfortable with death. While everyone else is being a professional and actually doing the killing, he's just. It doesn't bother him. He's, you know, he's doing his job. He's doing his uh, his work. He's kicking things around and and hacking into the, the sister. But it, it's sociopathic tendencies he's showing there. It's just this complete detachment from what he's doing. He's, he's even oh. cheerful. Yeah, he he was done is. right to people when the uh, when the RV gets blown up and mm. he
5: knows the quarterback. Oh my God,
2: the quarterback
0: is toast. toast. Yes. The actor playing Uli, one of the thieves, Al Leong, played who in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? Genghis Khan. Yes. <laughs> Dude who goes nuts in the sporting goods store. Um, music question: What are the two songs that Argyle plays in his limo? Uh, Christmas in Harvest Hollis, Hollis. one yes it's the one I knew yeah I don't know the other, the other one's only for a few seconds but it's when he's uh, downstairs in the basement talking to his girlfriend on the phone
1: I'll have to pass on that one
0: it's Skeletons by Stevie Wonder first things that happens in this film is that John's co-passenger instructs him to walk around on the rug barefoot and make this with with your your toes. toes. This is why John remains barefoot for pretty much the remainder of the movie. It's a masterstroke of characterization because it makes John permanently unprepared for what he's facing. Robbed of one of the key items of clothing that separates modern civilised man from our cave-dwelling ancestors, the protection that shoes give us will always be undervalued, but spend the next day walking around just your house without shoes. Count how many times you painfully stub your toe, encounter an unpleasantly rough surface or step on something sharp, and then imagine there were Germans in the building trying to kill you. That's my average weekend, but it's a wonderfully illustrative way of showing how John has been stripped down to just his pants, his vest, his watch, and a gun with very limited ammo. It's actually pretty video gaming. That'd be like the it, first level.
1: It also yeah. makes me laugh because the reason he's told to do that is to get over his was it his fear of flying or his just general dislike of flying?
0: i I'm possibly just his—it's uh, not jet lag because that's only a few hours across, isn't it? Yeah. I think, yeah, he's not a fan of flying. At the beginning, he's very tense. Maybe it's just it's just to relieve the tension.
1: And basically, it works, because so he just has that. Like, Son of a...
0: And ironically, while I was watching it this morning, I'd I just literally gotten out of bed, and I was walking around on the carpet going, that kind of works. <laughs> and
1: then I ran and got some shoes quick. Yeah, because he stood on some Lego or something.
0: Even when he does have a machine gun, ho ho ho, McLean is still completely outmatched. The thieves herding him in groups from a distance, making his mid-range SMG useless, especially up against Carl Steyer Aug, which any Call of Duty fan will tell you is an excellent long-range sniping weapon as well as a basis for excellent cover fire. Oh, yes. John's main weapon is his Beretta 92FS, which he carries for the first three movies, before trading off for a zigzag P220 for no specific reason in the fourth. This is the pistol he shoots Marco through the table with and tapes to his back when he has only two bullets left. It's also probably the handgun that's appeared on the most movie posters ever, closely followed by the .44 Magnum. Make a case for why Hans Gruber deserves to be in the top five movie villains of all time. Why is he good? Why is why do we always think of him when we think of really good well,
1: He's 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 never really ruffled till the end of the movie. He's calm, cool, collected. Mm-hmm. He's um always he's got he's always got the plan going. It's mm-hmm. always about the plan. He he went in, he knows what he's doing. And I think it's just it's Alan Rickman. He's fucking cool. Yeah. I
0: mean he was a relatively unknown at the time, wasn't he? He's been in stuff for he, like, he lost
1: his big break in America. Uh, yeah.
0: And he got Robin Hood as a result of this
1: where he acts Kevin Costner off the screen. Oh,
0: Christ. It's, it, it's unbelievable. That final battle between him and Kevin Costner. It's, just go away. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> oh. um, th- I, I read the novelization of Last Action Hero, and Danny yells at uh, Jack Slater, played by Alan Schwarzenegger, at one point, watch out for this guy, Benedict. Uh, he almost killed uh, Bruce Willis and Kevin Costner. I think... The original casting for uh, Benedict in Last Action Hero was going to be Alan Rickman, but he probably said, no, and they got Charles Dance instead.
1: Which I'm not complaining about. I like Charles Dance in that movie. He was all right.
0: There's a great line in that film where he goes, if God was a villain, it would be, be me. <laughs> We're not doing Last Action Hero. Oh, I think um, another reason Hans is such a good villain
4: is...
3: He's got a split personality, to all intents and purposes. He goes yeah. from smiling, charm, and approving of the suit. You know, he sees the suit, and he's talking about mm. the fashion, all and then, poof, just without pausing, shoots him yeah. in the head. Absolutely no compunction about it whatsoever, and it's just that switch, that ability to, to change from pleasant and charming to just shooting someone in the face. Yeah. That, that makes him a, an excellent...
0: Again, sociopathic tendencies It's the ability to seem normal but hide a, you know, hide a deeply m- cracked moral code. And yeah. The the, uh, the hyper intelligence
2: too. I mean, he's yeah. not only ten steps ahead of the FBI and the police, but yeah. he also, you know, there are aspects of the plan that his own mm. team doesn't even know about, and he's yeah. just telling them, "Trust me, I'll, I'll get the last one down."
0: It's Don't Christmas, worry. Theo. It's the time for miracles. <laughs> the, the worst thing you can do in a film is to make your uh, villain not as good as your hero, you have got to fight to make your villain better in not just a film, a story. If your villain is bungling at any point, you haven't got a story. It's that simple. Yep. If, if, um, like, Lex Luthor in the Superman films, you know, surrounding himself with fucking idiots, it's like, no, Lex Luthor, if he was a decent villain would surround himself by you know, efficient people. They don't necessarily have to be particularly intelligent, but he wouldn't waste his time messing around with uh, uh, Ned Beattie and Miss Tess More
1: on that when we do Superman.
0: Absolutely. Clever, distinguished, polite and professional. Gruber never seems to take anything in this scenario personally. They're just obstacles to be dealt with and thought round. It isn't until the end when the police are closing in, the money is in his grasp, John has done his level best to screw up his plans, and he's stuck with an overly critical holly that he snaps and lets his anger show although he also comes close after he shoots Ellis he pulls the uh, walkie talkie out and just plays it screaming crowds for John and says where are my detonators tell me or I will find someone you do care about it's like he's, he's showing his hand at that point he would almost be too aloof as a villain, too detached to take seriously. But he remains a constant figurehead of menace by ruthlessly and calculatingly murdering Takagi and Ellis. Somewhere in the back of your mind, you can feel the chain that ends in Holly as he reels in this mysterious partygoer connected with John. You have no doubt he would kill her and try not to get any blood on his John Phillips of London suit. But he'd only do it as a way of getting to John. Everything has a use to him, and he's just as creative as MacLean. But ultimately... Colonel Stewart in the sequel is equally ruthless and calculating. That alone does not make for a great villain. The real reason is because he's funny. Alan Rickman plays him with a dry, effortless ease, and there's some truly cracking lines that get delivered with only the blackest of humour behind them. As written, the script isn't actually all that hilarious, but it's the first-rate delivery and conviction behind Rickman's performance that sells it to us. I want others to be professional, efficient, adult, cooperative, Not a lot to ask for. Alas, your Mr. Takagi did not see it that way, so he won't be joining us for the rest of his life. As written, you're like, eh, but the way he says it, and everyone's like, oh, shit. And everyone's so scared of him as well.
1: He always has that underlying sense of menace. Yeah. Some of the
0: secondary performances in this film really do make the final piece. Bonnie Bedelia's Holly is so key to John McClane's character in terms of both an antagonist and a source of redemption. So much so that Die Hard 2 feels far closer in spirit to the first film by virtue of her presence than the following pair. Without Holly, John has a lot less to live for and frankly, to die harder for. He even finishes the third film, calling her to patch things up, which leads us to believe the train wreck that his life has become might have some hope for it. It's a damn shame that she was simply written out of the fourth film and passed off as a bad memory that John doesn't appear to have a soul.
1: That's just one of many problems with Paul. Hmm.
0: If there is indeed to be a fifth and even sixth diehard film, as Willis has hinted, my first order of business would be to go about making Maclean as human as possible again. Secondly, bring back Holly. We want to see what has happened between them. This water under the bridge that gets in the way of your action set pieces is the very thing that nourishes the earlier films. Bedelia plays Holly uptight and mouthy with a dynamic combination of weariness and inner strength that allows her to stand up to Gruber where others have failed, and for us to see where it all went wrong with her stubborn other half.
1: Yeah, but their relationship because of that does make plenty of sense. You can see why these two were together. Mm as well as why they're not together as well. This film does something that, uh, I mean, I can't even remember the last time I watched an action movie where they actually decided to have, you know, character growth in it.
0: Yeah, certainly very few action movies before it. I mean, Like I said, I wouldn't even define it as an action movie. It's, it's closer to thriller than action movie. It's just that yeah. it has action in it. It's like saying The Matrix is an action movie. Well, yeah, but... William Atherton as Dick Thornburg has the thankless task of perfectly playing the morally bankrupt journalist in a similar role to Walter Peck, whom he plays in Ghostbusters. He's there not as the chief villain, but as the enabler the spanner in the works, the monkey of the wrench, who lays bare the weak spot of the heroes for the main villains to take advantage of, and both times it's to further his own career. In this case, it's unveiling McLean's identity, and indeed children on national television, allowing Hans to single out Holly and put John and the rest of the hostages in serious danger. Atherton ultimately played his role so well that kids would boo and hiss at him in the street, which left him not especially happy with his choices.
2: I love uh, when both he and uh, the other guy, Paul Gleason, who mm. plays the deputy chief or, or whatever his title is. Yeah, I'm about any, to talk about Either movies. of those guys in, in a movie in the late 80s or early 90s, they mm. may as well have shown up on screen with a giant T-shirt that said Asshole on it.
4: Because
2: <laughs> all
0: they ever played. It's, I think maybe Die Hard's the only one that combined the two of them in A Perfect Storm. Yep, Exactly. Paul Gleason brings the asshole he played on The Breakfast Club right back to the screen as Deputy Chief of Police Dwayne T. Robinson. Under Dwayne's orders, the LAPD are shockingly unprepared in that movie. They attempt to break in with a four-man team and get shot to pieces. Their SWAT team don't like brambles very much, and their armoured car blunders directly into bazooka fire. It's like the entire force was called out to the scene of a hostage crisis, aside from the one rather important member... The hostage negotiator. <laughs> it, it seems it's, it's Dwayne doing the negotiations and he's like, oh, this is crazy. As soon as Hans gives him his first order. You well, could apparently-
2: go so far as to say that they got butt fucked on TV, Dwayne. Yes. <laughs> Fuck you very much.
1: Apparently, uh, Kevin Spacey and Samuel L. Jackson were on vacation. Oh, man,
0: you got there first. And if we're going by movie lore, then that should have been LAPD's finest, Danny Roman, played by Mr. Samuel L. Jackson, ten years before he faced down Kevin Spacey's Chris Sabian. Maybe he was on a skiing trip. Taylor Fry, who played Lucy McLean in the original Die Hard, was six years old at the time of filming. Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who played her in Die Hard 4, was three. Eh. (laughs) Although Taylor did apparently actually audition for the role again. And special mention must go to one of the greatest on-screen presences. Well, Al. Al. Reginald Bell Johnson. Al was very good. But he's not the one I'm thinking of. The one I'm thinking of was that cuddly bear. (laughs) (laughs) He manages to steal every scene he's in. The true test of his skill would have been being put in a room with Hans, the movie of which we will never get to see. Favourite bits of the movie? See if you can uh, get all the ones on my list. Well, my
2: favourite by far is when uh, Hans and John come face to face, but yeah. Hans is Bill
0: Clay. Yeah. Um, that's the, the coffee guy. shop scene from Heat to me for this Yeah, film.
2: yeah. And one of the things that's interesting about that is, you know, that there's a whole lot of gunfire and action that precedes that. Yeah. But the way the sound is done in the movie mm-hmm. at that point, which is, you know, the zenith of the movie, that's the climax... When, finally, uh, Hans's goons show up in the elevator and gunfire breaks out, it is so loud yeah. that the, the whole rest of the movie just cranks the volume up and it becomes that much more intense.
0: Hans gives the game away by talking in German into the uh, uh, walkie-talkie and then uh, it holds him at gunpoint. And it's... it's, it's it's a case that you, you almost can't believe that he fell for it, because, you know, clearly McLean's a detective, he's not stupid, and so he, did, you know, doing a fucking stupid Hans, he's going to give this complete stranger with a bullshit story a loaded gun, but, um, yeah, he, he falls for it, but it's just, the, the real meeting only lasts a few seconds, because they're, you know, they're sizing each other up beforehand, and you can you can see that Hans is looking him up and down, spots his feet... And, you know, makes his assumptions on what John actually is like based on what he's been talking about to in, on the, uh, the radios. And John looks at Hans, works out what kind of person he is, although he's already seen him in the, uh, elevator. Uh, the elevator from the top of him. But John's very guarded. He's not going to get the wall pulled over his eyes at this point. And then there's that she's staying finster. Moment. Yes, I love that. I quote huh? I, uh, that line all the time. The glass. <laughs> It actually means shoot the window, as in to defenestrate, to chuck yeah, someone out of a window. But that way. actually makes sense because
2: he's trying to not let John know what he's saying, right? And right. I think glass in German is just Glas, G-L-A-S. Oh, so. right. she's glass. Oh no, the glass. <laughs> not that there was fuck all he could do about it, but
1: yeah. I have to admit, I do like the scene on the rooftop where he ties himself to the host pipe yes. and jumps. And it's just oh. what he's saying to himself when he's going, "What are you doing, John?" as he just caught, he's tying himself up with the hosepipe and he's like I can't believe I'm about to do this and then he just jumps off an exploding rooftop yeah and that explosion is still incredible
3: yeah <sighs> another explosion is the one where um he's completely improvising he's got all the C4 oh yeah bumps the, the monitor the- up, wraps up bungs it down the elevator shaft Aye. and then it's beyond anything he could have imagined and he's completely unprepared to deal with this massive explosion yeah and gets oh shit and throws himself away at the last minute yeah and destroys a building, <laughs> which is pretty
0: cool. Yeah, but I'm not a chemist or an explosives expert. I'd, is that right in, if anybody knows? Can you actually set off C4 by wrapping it in, around, you know, put it in a chair with a monitor to it, and just chucking yeah, it?
1: <laughs> I've never got the bit where he sticks the monitor on top of it.
0: Well, that's to create the electricity? I don't know. <laughs> well, actually, that was just weight,
3: I should to send it, yeah, it quicker really down weird. the shaft, but yeah, there's no no obvious way of detonating it, which is... a. Uh,
0: well, what do detonators <laughs> do? Do they deliver an electrical charge to the...
3: Yes. Yeah, they would yeah. be connected to something, I
0: think, but... Mm. Well, then, surely the monitor would have residual static electricity in it, which would be enough to set off the C4. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right in there, tell it. us. I
0: think <laughs> that's the thinking behind the monitor being there, but... Uh, yeah, I don't want to get into Gumby territory. I also love, now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, oh, ho. ho. That's enough that if you say that to any 30-something man, they'll go, ah, oh, diehard. <laughs> and I love uh, Ellis
2: trying and failing to
0: square off mm, against Tom. That's also on my list. Yeah. I'm your white knight. <laughs> it's this kind of, uh, this, this sort of disapproval of these sort of arrogant wankers Snorting cocaine in their offices and making these deals and believing that they run the universe. This kind of... this this self-delusion that Ellis is going through. The the, the idea that he believes he can actually pull this this around and get, you know, John to surrender and then everything will work fine. He massively underestimates Hans.
1: Holly punching the reporter as well.
0: Yes, also fantastic. Uh, Another one of my favourites, The Last Two Bullets. When he's just literally... He sees he's got two bullets... And then he looks across, and he sees some some sticky tape. And he's like, ah! And it goes. And it's just this, this wonderful kind of, you've got fuck all, but you know what you can make with this? It's kind of like MacGyver. And that's sort of repeated in uh, Die Hard 3, when he ends up with this crappy old... Um, service revolver with two bullets in it, and uh, it's the, the the magic of McLean is not that he's you know comes out all guns blazing, it's that he has two bullets and he knows exactly which two bits to shoot. How
2: about I also love that uh, much like this is not a specific scene, but much like the Imperial March, the terrorists have their own little musical refrain. Yes, I think it's Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or something
0: like that. Yeah, um, Michael Kamen was riffing on Beethoven the whole way through, which gives it much more of a classic feel. If he'd uh, they've just gone for. Um, uh, also, it's it's it kind of reminds me of Clockwork Orange because a lot of the uh, um, re- refrains he uses from it are actually in the Clockwork Orange.
1: I'm going to guess you like the o to Joy scene as well. Love it. The safe opens. You yes, every time.
0: I actually got a little bit kind of misty today. I'm not sure why. I was like, "What? Some some thieves get in and see." I think it's possibly that I just appreciated that piece of music now. You know, that, as as I as I end to a slightly more mature point in my life, and I'm like, "Wow, that is a really fantastic piece of music, and it works perfectly at this moment."
1: Really? It made me want to play Peggle. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You got the fever! Uh, and there's of course, some, just some cowboy wants to be John Wayne. Uh, I always thought of myself as Roy Rogers. You really think you can beat us? Yippee Kaye, motherfucker! <laughs> Now, you, know,
2: you, you guys were talking before we started recording about the way that appears on TV in the mm-hmm. UK. I, I was under the impression you could say pretty much anything you want on television in the UK. Oh,
0: but, maybe uh, now, but back in the day, you have no idea how terrible the dubbing was in the early oh, 90s. Like, I have a very good idea how terrible. I, I've endured Yippee-Ki-Yay, mister Falcon.
3: Uh, oh, my uh, God. God.
0: We got, we got a version of Robocop, which, by the way, is one of the most grotesque and, and explosively bloody and foul-mouthed movies. And it's also awesome of all time. Why bother making a TV cut of that? But anyway, they made a TV cut, and it is, it's infamous for how much they butchered it. Like the bit where he uh, he goes to uh, the and also it's the, the choices of language they use as replacement is ridiculous. When he uh, the, when he corners the guy in the gas station and he's going fuck me, fuck me, it changes to why me, why me over and over again. <laughs> when Samuel L. Jackson in uh, Coming to America uh, is holding Eddie Murphy at uh, shotgun point, he goes forget you. Which you know, I think, forget you became kind of like uh, a thing that people said in the 90s because of this terrible, terrible dubbing of of, uh, of real words on TV. I think it's really harmful to movies because it, it, it you, is. you get stuck with that stupid fucking word in your head and the way well, it's said.
1: I think uh, the uh, in the origins because uh, the one I pointed out was Farmer, I mm. think that comes from the TV dub of Goodfellas.
0: Where's- Why put good fellas on TV if you also include the word melon farmer? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently out of sight had monkey feather. <laughs> what is the thinking behind it? Oh, we must protect the children. Is it- <sighs> Like I said, all you're doing is actually ruining a great script in the minds of these kids who are basically watching this terrible version of the movie cut down with all the violence removed. I'm I'm all for I mean, I'm not for showing kids violence, but some of my best memories of films that I really shouldn't have been seeing when I was a kid. Like I saw Predator in black and white on my telly at night and I was about 10 and I was like, this is the most awesome film I've ever seen. And I, I couldn't see what was happening because it was black and white. <laughs> and I was it's about a very s- camouflagey type movie as it
1: is. I was about seven and watched Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh God!
0: But yeah, okay. I mean, it's obviously yeah. Don't don't corrupt children. But this constant uh, this is probably a talk for another time. But it's it's it has been responsible for some terrible moments in uh, some terribly funny moments as well in movie yeah. dubbing history.
2: What about the uh, the only scene in the movie that I actually hate? Oh, God. The, uh, I know. And I love this movie. This is one of my all-time favorite movies. Mm-hmm. But uh, in terms of a, a late 80s, early 90s uh,
0: thriller cliché that... Failed, hang on, hang on. Uh, so the, the couple having sex get busted and dragged out into the hallway, and the girl's tits are out. And she's like, no, no, my tits. Well, there's that. But this is... This is <laughs> no, yes. That wasn't enough. <laughs> when... Uh,
2: when Carl is coming out on the stretcher at the end, and, but when, yeah. he's not And he dead. wasn't
0: quite dead. I really like that.
2: Yeah, it's a little much like Fatal Attraction or Sleeping with the Enemy or any one of those kind of yeah. early 90s thrillers where I'm not really dead, I'm going to come back alive. Like, I, I wanted Al to have his redemption, but it would have been nice if it would have been through the course of the story and not when everything had already been yeah.
4: resolved.
0: It's one of those few times where it's like, oh, no, he was not dead, that I, I figure is, <laughs> is enjoyable in the movie. Um, John McTiernan went on to direct The Hunt for Red October, Last Action Hero, the brilliant Thomas Crown Affair remake, the terrible Rollerball remake, and Basic. Most pertinently, he also directed the third Die Hard movie, which we will be covering in two weeks' time. He hasn't worked much in recent years due to an unfortunate wiretapping scandal involving an overly zealous private investigator and his ex-wife. Had that not happened, he may have directed Die Hard 4 and it might have been great. Instead, we got Len Wiseman and it was rubbish. More than that in three weeks.
4: <laughs>
2: when you did the Empire Strikes Back episode, you noted that the movie was timeless enough that if it were released in theaters tomorrow, it would not feel in any way dated. And I think that this is one of the few movies that I actually feel that way about. Um, it, I watch it pretty much every year at Christmas time and even though, you know, it's like 20 something years old, um 22? 22. 22. The, uh, nothing really stands out. Like the computers are, are kind of obviously dated and mm. the squad cars and maybe the weaponry, but... The fact that John doesn't that, have a mobile. Yeah, none of that really sticks out as being you know, horribly outdated or anything. In fact, the uh, Twinkie packaging has not changed in 22 years. The the only thing that could possibly stick out as an anachronism if it were released in theaters tomorrow
0: is Bonnie Bedelia's hair. <laughs> <laughs> I think if it was released in theaters tomorrow, then the best thing would be that it just plays exactly as it normally would, but at the very beginning it goes 1988.
1: I was trying to describe this movie to my girlfriend, and for me, Die Hard, and I know you've been calling it an action thriller, but I say it's an almost perfect action movie.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: It really is almost perfect. Because the best thing about this, one of the greatest things is we spend 30 minutes of this movie being introduced to the characters, getting a feel for the characters. And like I said earlier, when was the last time you watched an action movie where they did that? But it goes to show that this is a really standout movie because it takes its time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of movies don't do this. They, are, they or, or If they do take their time, they take mick with it and go so long it's oh yeah bad directing bad and it's also a perfect length as well you never feel you never sat there going i'm a bit bored oh, when's that. this gonna finish
0: yeah no wizard's past. when hans drops out of the window and clings onto holly john has to remove what to shake him off her rolex watch which was given to her by the corporation yes mm-hmm. Nakatomi, and thus the balance is restored It's kind of like um, it's a wedding band that her job has given her and she effectively divorces it in favour of John. Before we go, gentlemen, pimp your shows. Uh, I do a podcast
2: called The Fanboys Lunchcast. It's just sort of an informal conversation that eventually gets around to the topic of video games. Uh, <laughs> and is also extremely vulgar, and you can find it at thefanboys.com. Full of melon farmers, I hear. Yeah, a lot of melon farming.
1: <laughs> you can find me ever at Gameverse at gameverse.co.uk, where we have a 30-minute podcast on a Sunday and a Thursday. Sunday we have the news, and on Thursday we have a roundtable discussion and possibly a new project coming in the new year. More stuff. More stuff. Oh my god! How do you
0: sl- how do you do stuff? You seem to just be always producing. I mean, I know I can just about deal with it, but I feel like I'm a juggler. How, how do you do it?
1: Uh, it's simple. I don't edit Game Burst. We Good have way. a dippy for that. You edit this one, and I'm thinking about bringing back an old show of mine. So. Oh my god.
0: Okay, um, Matt. Is it possible you have anything you want to pitch?
1: Uh, no, nothing at all. That's right. I'm
3: afraid, sadly. You could always plug the Digital Cowboys. Yes. Well, obviously, but I will indeed plug the Digital Cowboys, an excellent uh, weekly podcast.
0: Michael Kamen lends the film a competent, edgy score, riffing on Beethoven and various Christmas themes throughout, including Let It Snow. At the very end, during the moment Carl reveals himself and Al shoots him, the piece of music used was actually from an earlier film. Can anybody tell me what it was? Not a clue. It was resolution and hypersleep from aliens composed by james horner for the benefit of those at home here's what it sounds like
1: I never noticed that before. I feel kind of ashamed seeing as Aliens is one of my favourite movies.
0: Indeed. I, I was like, <laughs> what? Uh, you're kidding. And then I happened to have the soundtrack anyway. I was like, that is exactly the bit of music. After that, another imported tune plays, the finale music from the 1987 original version of Man on Fire scored by John Scott. The song is called We've Got Each Other and it sounds like this. on it earlier in the film so Al shoots Carl the day is saved John and Holly go home to their two somewhat panicked kids and we wait two years for a sequel but what will always make this an absolutely unforgettable Christmas movie is this song
5: the weather outside is frightful But the fire is so delightful And since we've no place to go Let it snow, let it
0: snow, let it snow it See you next week for part two, Die Harder. Manly Farmer. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: Yippee-ki-yay, Mr Falcon Happy trails, Hans You've been dying to say that, haven't you? Yeah <laughs>
4: Let us know
1: When we finally kiss
5: goodnight How I hate going out in the storm But if you really hold me tight All the way home I'll be warm The fire is slowly dying and my dear, we're still goodbye. But as long
4: as you love me so,
5: let us know, let us know, let us know. <laughs>
0: This is Die Hard 2, colon, Die Harder. We're back with the second of four Die Hard movie reviews. With me once again is Neil Telly from GameBurst. Hello, Neil.
1: Hello to Jason Isaacs. <laughs> I've to do that for ages. And, Matthew,
0: and we know you're listening, Jason. And Matthew Ramsey, better known on the DC forums as Matt Harrier, returns once more. Hello again, Matt. Hello again. <laughs> now... Die Hard 2 is a first for Gonzo Gaming because up till now we've covered movies that we either love, like the original Star Wars trilogy, or hate, like the prequel Star Wars trilogy. Die Hard 2, for me, is a pretty standard action film with little to really speak about other than the continuing story of the characters. Director John McTiernan was gone, replaced by Rennie Harlan, a Finnish man who up to that point had most famously directed... <laughs> Anyone know this one? No. It was... A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, colon, The Dream
1: Master. Searching my horror.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Harlan later went on to direct Cliffhanger, The Long Kiss Goodnight, and Deep Blue Sea, all of which ranged from okay to All Right, and the studio-killing bomb that was Cutthroat Island.
1: Has anyone actually seen that? I have. It's rubbish. I know. Got some of it and
3: switched it off.
0: It's it's <laughs> sort of abhoringly bad. It made me uh, feel like um, when they were releasing Pirates of the Caribbean, they were like, "This is what might happen. This <laughs> is what might
1: happen." Fortunately, no, I think they were safe. There was no Gina Davis in it. <laughs> yeah. See, Gina Davis wasn't
0: all that terrible. It's just that everything in that film was just kind of uh, it, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, when you watch it, it's not absolute. It's not. I mean, I've seen worse movies but it's very expensive and you can see where all the money went. And Although
1: The Long Kiss Goodnight is a good movie.
0: Yeah, it's actually quite good. Yeah. That's all right. I, I remember Tony quite liked that one. Die Hard 2 was written again by Die Hard writer Stephen E. D'Souza who lost Jeb Stewart and was joined instead by Doug Richardson who went on to write Bad Boys, Hostage and the rewrite of Die Hard 4. Just like Die Hard, this was based on an original novel named...
3: 58 Minutes. 58 Minutes. Yeah.
0: Uh, written by Walter Wager. Uh, they didn't really give a description to what happens in 58 minutes, but from the sounds of it, a cop has to prevent aircraft crashing uh, and does pretty much the same thing as as McLean does. I think his wife's up in the air as well. So pretty much they just, same same as a Die Hard 1, they took the, the bones of the story and then built McLean around it. Only this time they had a fully formed character to work with. That's what kind of bothers me about Die Hard 2. Everything good about it is something that's carried over from the first one, really. I mean, it doesn't really do anything new.
1: No, it really is, like you said. It's a but it's an early nineties action movie. Mm. It's I mean, okay, it's not too bad. It's
0: it's like Cliffhanger, again, it's just, Cliffhanger was all right. There's that bit where that woman falls at the beginning and you're like, Oh no I've but, only <laughs> seen
1: Cliffhanger twice and I still can't remember it. I know what's <laughs> the Stallone in it? That's <laughs>
0: what it is. I actually did once write Renny Harlan a uh, email back in the day when I think uh, directors didn't get emails all that often. Um, I, I sent him one after watching Deep Blue Sea and said I enjoyed that just as much as Jaws, uh, which at the time was true. I don't these days. Uh, and, and I was slightly cocky in my uh, response. And I, I said, uh, Mr. Harlan, you really should do a film where squirrels and pigeons get crossbred on an island by uh, people doing scientific experiments. You could call it squidgens. And he replied... Oh, yes. Thank you.
3: (laughs) (laughs) At least it was thank you. It could have been something else. Yeah, just polite, Polite, you
0: know. I know. Um, I I was just, you know, I was 19 at the time, very silly, and just playing with email.
1: That explains the (laughs) liking of Deep Blue Sea. (laughs) (laughs) Deep
0: Blue Sea is all right. Exactly. (laughs) Same as most of his output. There's a theme developing here, isn't there? Really. Now the reason this feels like Die Hard is sevenfold. Firstly, it has McLean, but also Holly, who was crucial to the original. Al is in there, too, so that you have more ties along with Dick Thornburg. It's set at Christmas. McLean is totally out of his depth. He argues constantly with the local law enforcement, and although it's mostly covered up, he is wearing that signature vest. Crucially, it also has an R rating, which meant that everybody swears their tits off for the duration. And finally, McLean is once again severely out of his depth and having to improvise at every opportunity. And the follow-up, Die Hard with a Vengeance, removed Al, Dick, the physical embodiment, but not the influence of Holly, and Christmas. However, the vest is still there, the R rating is still definitely there, and the sense of McLean being out of his depth is also there. It also reinstated John McTiernan, a crippling physical state akin to being shoeless in the shape of a horrendous hangover, and a Gruber brother thrown in for good measure, and to make it personal. Michael Kamen also composed a score for all three of them. We will go into what's wrong with Die Hard 4 in two weeks' time, but as a taster, there's no vest, no Christmas, no McTiernan, no D'Souza, no Cayman, no R rating, no sense of a desperate struggle, no Al, no Holly, and most of all, no dick.
1: No yippee-ki-yay. Looks like an old man, turns into Homer fucking Simpson. Wearing
0: a singlet. No hair. No relationships of any kind. But, you know, we'll do that in two
1: weeks. (laughs) Sorry, we're getting carried away. It does
0: look like Homer Simpson. (laughs)
4: It just
1: looks like Homer Simpson, and later on he even does a Homer Simpson-style pratfall.
0: Oh my god! Okay, right. Well, yeah, we'll get to that in a bit.
1: Wrong movie, sorry.
0: Okay. <laughs> so when you look at it like that, Die Hard 2 isn't all that bad. It's just a bit perfunctory. Competent, that's about it. A bit by the numbers with a little tasty die-hard flavour added. Like a stodgy day-old supermarket sandwich that someone slipped a rasher of fresh grilled bacon into. So this isn't the usual Gonzo review. I have no long essay deconstructing the minutiae of a by-the-numbers action film. Instead, we can discuss it between us based on a series of relatively open-ended talking points. Actors to look out for in this film. and How many can you name?
3: Robert Patrick. Dennis yes. Barr.
0: Yes. William Sadler. Yes. Let's say who they are and what they did.
3: John Leguizamo is in
0: it, very yes, briefly. Yes, he is. Yes. Uh, well, start with the first one. Robert Patrick, who was he in the movie?
3: Uh, a bad guy. His name is
0: O'Reilly. Uh-huh. Homework. He He's the guy who, uh, when they approach them in the... I mean, you guys know. If you've seen it, you know who Robert Patrick is. He's the T-1000. And when they go, what do I look like to you? And he goes, a sitting duck and shoots him point blank in the face, and somehow manages not to get shot by his entire backup team. How, I mean, as incompetent as the police are in the first Die Hard, they're really incompetent in this one.
1: Well, they're not the police, it's airport security, so they're even thicker, apparently. Yeah,
0: yeah. render cops. Um, okay, right, so who was John Liguisamo?
1: He was yeah. Dennis's bronze's cousin, wasn't he? Was he? Oh, no, 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 no. no. That hey, was uh, guys, up. but.
0: He was just had one mind. Yeah, all. no, his his cousin Vito was Joey Tribbiani's dad and friends.
1: Oh uh, yes, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas! You know that smug guy. Uh, no, John Leguizamo is a named book, and he was one of the uh, the terrorist type guys. Who else did you say? Dennis Franz, obviously, uh, who was Carmine Lorenzo. That I mean, it's a it's a pretty good role for him. He's he's. Uh, He's a thorn in, I mean, what? McLean's a thorn in his side, he's a thorn in McLean's side. They bicker, they argue, they pretty much make out at one point. And
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, it's, it's those response being Grumpy Cop. Yeah. Played in NYPD Blue.
0: Yeah, he was Sipowitz in NYPD Blue. He was also in Hill Street Blues as well. We played Grumpy Cop. And uh, he, he does it very well. And, you know, he's, he's there doing it, being very cliched. <laughs> or maybe he's a cliché because people copied him. I don't know. Any, anybody recognise the Windsor Airlines pilot who's like, Dulles Airport, where the it's, devil are you?
1: I can never remember it. It's Colin McHenney. Colm <laughs> Meany. Basically, Chief O'Brien. Oh, Is that yeah. shit, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> he was doing a very British accent, but he's actually very Irish. It's Chief O'Brien. All right. Uh, and, yeah, that's him. And uh, John Amos plays Major Grant, uh, the treacherous Marine commander type guy. And uh, he was Fitz in the West Wing. And, uh, he was also McDowell in Coming to America, the, uh, crooked McDonald's copycat guy.
1: No, fit, I, I know both of those. He's much better as Fitz.
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah. He's great as Fitz. And, of course, there's William Sadler, who is really funny as death in, uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, and really <laughs> kind of funny in the Shawshank Redemption. Counter Monte Cristo. <laughs> written by Alexander Dumas. <laughs> <laughs> Dumas. Yeah, um, he, I, he, William Sadler is actually quite funny, but. This guy, (laughs) Colonel... He's just mean. Colonel, what's his name? Stewart. Colonel Stewart. I'll get to Colonel Stewart in a bit. The events are pretty straightforward. A militant group covertly take over control of Washington's Dulles Airport one Christmas Eve. They communicate only with the control tower and hold all the planes in the air hostage until they can land a plane of and escape with a corrupt General Esperanza. John McLean is at the airport waiting for Holly so that they can share a Christmas at her parents' house. It's clearly been quite a good two years for them because John is now working in L.A. as opposed to New York, so he can be with Holly and the kids. Holly's plane is among those in the air, so he has a personal reason to save the day. In just under two hours, he saves the day. But not before the so-called terrorists bring down a British airliner and everybody gets deceived by another military group brought in to fix the situation, but in all actuality, allied with the quote-unquote terrorists. I'm kind of just bored talking about it.
1: It's standard action movie fair, It yeah. really is. It's, it's... Oh, right, it's not Beverly Hills Cop 2, which is really boring.
0: Terrorists hold something ransom. I mean, the, the, one of the best bits of Die Hard is when Hans says to Holly, who said we were terrorists? It's kind of like a game-changing... Oh. Ah. So, I mean, in all seriousness, I don't even consider these guys to be terrorists. Because they're not trying to cause terror. They're just... uh, They're only communicating with the tower. If they were trying to cause terror, they would broadcast to everyone at the airport, oh, this is what we're doing. I don't even call them terrorists.
1: They're just generic bad guys in most of the time. It's
0: difficult to say what they are. I mean, they're just this sort of ruthless-eyed people who do shit and shoot people and have lots of grenades and run rings around the police Absolutely. and just right. ridiculously over equipped and and also no matter how much happens colonel stewart never seems to be i mean he's always on top of everything but not in the same way that hans gruber is he's just in the kind of i guess i have anticipated everything
1: kind of way it's like he uh, also he doesn't have a personality i no, can't, can't even think of a personality when you compare that up to hans gruber who was just well, you heard us talk about Hans Gruber last time. Yeah. Compared to him, Stuarts boring
0: one of the key differences between the first two films is that unlike the original the main villain is dull and emotionless without a shred of humour and John doesn't really engage with him or any of the hoods he crosses paths with he just shoots them squashes their heads in luggage sorters and stabs them through the eye with an icicle crucially in the original McLean was an antagonist for Gruber and his men Colonel Stewart seems to find John to be a mildly amusing irritation even up to the finale where after McLean throws his partner into a jet engine he simply kicks him off the plane it's not the least bit personal or, for that matter, compelling. And also, did we need to see his ass?
4: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I
0: know you're showing that he's, like, really committed and really single-minded, but I don't think Arse Cheeks really says that.
1: <laughs> I don't know. We saw Gerald Butler's arse in 300.
0: We, oh, yes. Well, it's, we saw a lot of stuff in 300. That's, I don't know, it doesn't really it make me not, uncomfortable, it just seems to be an extra arse for the sake of it.
3: I think because he could have been wearing like, jogging bottoms or something quite easily and still still done what he was doing. Yeah.
0: I mean, effectively, he looks like his body's carved out of wood, he looks awesome, and he's doing all this karate stuff, in fact, I actually know that, Kata. But, um, it's quite a basic one, and, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's just sort of, it's arse. Dominates the frame.
1: The trouble is, now you've said that, I've got the line from uh, Loaded Weapon 1 in my head. Which what is... Are you doing? What are you doing? Nothing, just taking one of those pointless butt-in-the-moonlight strolls. Yeah, <laughs> I think... Wasn't that
0: referencing Lethal Weapon or something? I don't really know the Lethal Weapon films all that much. Did that happen in Lethal Weapon? Uh, or was it Michael Michael Douglas's ass in Basic Instinct?
1: I think it was just a pointless, but in the movie...
0: I'm moonlight. sure we see Michael Douglas' wrinkly ass in Basic Instinct. Also, interesting you mentioned uh, Loaded Weapon 1. Isn't John McClane himself in Loaded Weapon 1? Yes. Bruce Willis like gets his caravan shot to pieces on the beach and comes out, and he, he's basically acting like John McClane. I, I think it's supposed to be him. He's even in the vest.
1: Yeah, he's in the vest again. Yeah. What are you doing? He goes, oh, is this? He gives an address. He goes, no, it's over there.
0: Yeah. Phnom <laughs> Phnom loaded weapon. Still funnier than Die Hard 2. <laughs> but not as funny as Die Hard 1. Of all the Die Hard movies, this also has the highest body count. In the original, Takagi and Ellis didn't cooperate with or satisfy Hans, so he shoots them in a way he deems logical. In three, Simon considers himself a soldier, not a monster, so he doesn't blow up a school. And in four, Thomas Gabriel seems to fancy himself as a whistleblowing wake-up call for America. In all four movies, cops and security get slaughtered like pigs, but only in Die Hard 2 does a plane full of civilians get blown to kingdom come in a way that manages to be both casual and pinky-raisingly Dr. Evil (laughs) they even stoop to the lowest piece of visual storytelling which is the best and most cliched way of a hero discovering that children died in a burnt out wreck the doll
4: yes in the wreckage (laughs) that's the easiest
0: way you say oh but kids died (sighs) like if adults died that's okay but if kids die that's terrible it's a horrible moment, and it seems to be only there to raise the stakes and make the head-crushing and eye-stabbing seem all the more warranted. Notably, it's also the point where my father, who at the time was Safety and Security Manager for British Airways at Gatwick Airport, turned off Die Hard 2 and wouldn't let me put it on again for two years. Ouch. I think he took exception to the fact that it was Windsor Airlines, a not even vaguely well veiled British Airways.
1: In fact, the funny thing is they make an English joke in that.
0: Oh, we're just like British Rail Love. we may be late, but we're now privatised and fucking late. <laughs> All the time. Forever. And you now have to pay ten times as much.
1: <laughs> I tell you what, the trouble is, this is how bland the movie is, we just, I'm starting to feel like, we don't care. Uh, it's like, John McClane turns up, kills some bad guys, saves the day, yay, let's get to Die Hard 3 where it kicks ass He again. does butcher them. He fuck. <laughs> he just... And he's also... Does he... I mean,
0: I know he shot a lot of bullets in Die Hard 1, but it seems like he's very wasteful of bullets in this one. Like, he's only got his Beretta 92FS. When they get to the place where all the SWAT team are getting shot to pieces, he jumps through the air vent, and then just, like, fires off an entire clip at one guy, not hitting him once... Sticks another clip in, fires another clip off, doesn't hit anybody. Sticks another clip in. I think he hits one person in this. Like he's already wasted thirty-six bullets.
1: So what's clear is John McClane has been down the gun range since his move to LA. Yeah. Well, well, also, you didn't mention the fact he got promoted as well.
0: D- I did. Hang on. He was a lieutenant. Now he's a.
1: No, he is. He's, he's just a beat cop, I think, or a detective in the first one. He's Det- a lieutenant in this now one. Now he's a lieutenant. To be honest, it is, and it is exactly what you you expect at that time period an easy sequel that's mm, it. Mm. by the number sequel that's what we got you didn't get the likes of The Dark Knight yeah no right, to be fair you don't, still don't get the likes of The Dark Knight as sequels nope. really
4: if you like the taste
5: of a lobster stew served by a window with an ocean view you're sure you should sure have fallen in love with both okay
0: Die Hard 2 also received one of the heftiest edits to bring it down to a 15 for video in the UK, and a ridiculous overdub to make it broadcast worthy for TV on both sides of the Atlantic. When there's this much blue language in a film, it almost seems nonsensical to have to perform such an edit. The rationale being people like Die Hard, but 3% of an audience really don't like it when people say cocksucker or motherfucker. So what you end up with are these Bastard stepchildren movie edits, most akin to the garbled backwards running gibberish of rap music radio edits of the late 90s. The cuts are extreme and the replacement editing and feathery language is so clumsy and ridiculous that it's like we're watching a TV station make the film for you out of Lego bricks rather than a cinematic experience with a break for the news halfway through. And really, what's all that about? Either put it on after the news late enough that it won't corrupt the kids, i.e. us, or don't put it on at all. You Mr. Falcons. (laughs) We talked about this last week, the the ridiculous language that they come up with in in place of even the mildest language. Oh, actually, I was in my research for that. I was checking through, you know, TV edits, and I found one of of Casino, and it was Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro. We're never going to talk about this film. Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro meeting in the desert, and then they have a very heated exchange. And I'm sitting there watching, and I'm going, it's amazing. These are both adult actors that I see swearing all the time, but they're not swearing. And they're instead using this weird, florid language, like it's, it's, you know, that they're just skirting around the subject. And it doesn't really make them seem all that angry. It's like taking away the swearing, completely sucked the emphasis out of that whole scene. And then halfway through, Joe Pesci suddenly calls him uh, a money-thieving Jew or something. I'm like, whoa! Okay, so racism is fine, but you can't say ass.
1: Or in America, isn't it, you can't show tits?
0: Uh, oh, I was appalled at that.
5: You said I'm bringing heat on you? I got to listen to people because of your lousy heat? You're ordering me out? You better get your own fighting army, pal. I didn't do anything. I mean, I didn't order you or anybody. I only told Andy Stone that you had a lot of heat on you, and that was a problem. You want me to get out of my own freaking town? Yeah, I said, let, let the stuff blow over for a while so I can run the casino. Anything goes wrong with the casino, it's my act. It's not yours, it's my act. Uh, I don't know whether you notice know or not, but you only have your lousy casino because I made that possible. <laughs> I'm what counts out here. Not your fancy country clubs or your... TV shows. And what the heck are you doing on TV anyhow? You know, I get calls from back home every single day. They think you went but so. Only on TV because I got to be able to hang around the casino. You understand that. I know know that. Come you stupid, jerk! You could have had the food and beverage job without going on television. You wanted to go on TV. Yeah, I did want to go on TV. That way I have a form. I can fight back. I'm known. People see me. They know they can't fool around with me like they could if I was an unknown. That's right. You're yeah. making a big foolish spectacle of yourself. Me? I wouldn't even be in this situation if it wasn't for you. You brought down so much stinking here. On me, I mean, every time I meet somebody here, the big question is, Do I know you? Oh, sure. And now you want to bring your filthy license on me, no, it? Di- Nikki. When you asked me if you could come out here, what did I tell you? I mean, you asked me, and I knew you were gonna come out no matter what I said, but what did I tell you? Do you remember what I told you? Do you remember what minute, I told you? Wait a minute. I asked you, When the heck did I ever ask you if I could come out here? Get this through your head, you, you never- get this through your head, you Jew money lover. you. You only exist out here because of me.
1: Okay. And I'd like to say, why are we not doing Casino? That's a good movie. No, it's not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't okay. like most Scorsese films. Casino is no exception. Ah. It's okay. We can maybe do... What's a good Scorsese film? Oh, no, there aren't any. Okay, so... <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> this isn't even making it into the final cut. What, know, I don't in. want the emails. Nah, no, because no, I've just seen Inception. So I was like... Okay, so Leo DiCaprio might be dreaming, his dead wife, what? Hang on a second. Oh, I, Shutter Island wasn't, I mean, none of Scorsese's movies that I've seen are terrible. I just really don't see why everybody loves them. I've never actually sat and gone, oh my God, that was terrible.
1: So basically your opinion of Martin Scorsese is my opinion of uh, Tim Burton then?
0: Yeah, kind of. I mean, we can, I, I'm not going to force you to do any of the Tim Burton
1: episodes. I'm but doing the Batman one, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, see, Tim Burton, for me, is so black and white. It's like he does, brilliant film, terrible film, brilliant film, terrible film. It's like he, he takes it in turns, like he's got this weird twin brother.
1: It's weird, because I actually, in, when we were talking, I know this will get chopped out, but we were talking about the Batman thing, <laughs> yeah. and I looked up um, Tim Burton's movies on IMDb to see which ones I liked. Mm-hmm. Two. Two. Okay, right. Uh, Big Fish. Nope. You don't like Big Fish? Nope. Oh, okay. Um,
0: I have no gauge of quality then. Uh, S- uh, Sweeney Todd? Nope. You don't like Sweeney Todd? Nightmare Before Christmas. Nope. You only produce
3: that.
0: I- Are you allowed to like films if you don't, <laughs> Scorsese
3: and you don't like Nightmare Before Christmas? Well, I don't, I
0: don't like Scorsese. You know <laughs> um, I don't like Scorsese, so between us we're not allowed to like films. <laughs> um, Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, awesome.
1: It's and the film. other one is The Corpse Bride.
0: Oh, I love that film. Yeah.
1: But okay. to be fair, it's on The Nightmare Before Christmas. I haven't seen that. Oh, OK.
0: Well, it's it's not like going to blow you away, yeah. but it is a pleasant and funny and twisted little black tale. Making
5: Christmas, making Christmas is so It's ours this time. And won't the children be surprised? It's ours this time. It's Christmas time to give them something fun they'll talk about
4: for years to come. Let's have
0: a cheer from everyone. It's time to party. The Glock 7 Made in Germany, this firearm is constructed entirely of porcelain. It's capable of passing through airport metal detectors completely unnoticed. The only downside to this amazing weapon is the price, which is quite expensive. The RRP is unknown, but experts say that it costs more than a Dulles International Airport police chief makes in a month. This is not to be confused with the Austrian-made 9mm Glock 17 or any other Glock handgun which actually exists or which are constructed of both steel and polymer, and would quite easily set off an airport metal detector. Retail price on any other Glock which actually exists is most likely much less than what a Dulles International Airport police chief makes in a month, about $500.
1: At least it wasn't a wooden gun. <laughs> <laughs> Firing wooden bullets. Have right, you not seen
0: In the Line of Fire? Oh, God, is he, I have not no hang on who directed that Clint Eastwood he's the other one that I don't see why everyone's (laughs) so awesome
1: I'm going to start shutting up now
0: it's it's only because both Scorsese and Clint Eastwood films are made for grown ups and I'm not yet one yet (laughs) every time I sit and watch a Clint Eastwood film my head slowly passes into my lap until I'm I'm pretty much bent up I'm
1: going to ask you a very important question (laughs) and if you get this wrong
0: I like Unforgiven it's all right.
1: I'm going to say Ridley Scott you do like him don't you
0: on and off. I love Alien. Um, oh, that's all right then. No, I no I'm
1: fine with on and off because yeah. that's me as well.
0: Uh, which other ones do do you like that he's done? I mean, Gladiator's all right, but frankly, best film of
1: 2000? No. Very uh, obviously, uh, I like uh, Alien, Blade Runner, stuff like that.
0: Uh, Blade Runner's d- interesting for me, because I've always found it boring, around about the halfway point. Um, and then I watched it recently, and I was like, oh my god, I love this film. I saw the final cut, and I thought, like, this is fantastic, it's fascinating. And then it got to the midway point, and I went, oh, I'm so bored. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, around about the time, just after he shoots that woman in the back, uh, sorry, the, the replicant, what's her name?
1: I can't remember now, but yes, I know yeah. what you mean. It does have that sort of
0: There's this weird long section where he goes and he hangs out with Rachel in his apartment, and she plays some piano, and then he pretty much rapes her. And you're like, aww.
1: Yeah, it's a bit weird.
0: I mean, she's like, I don't want to kiss you, I don't want to do anything with you. He's like, no, no, it's happening, bitch. You're like, ooh, this is seedy.
1: (laughs) It could be worse, it could be Tony Scott.
0: Oh, God, Tony Scott. I like Top Gun, but that's about it.
1: I I recently watched Unstoppable. Unstoppable. Yeah, it's the one with Chris Pine and Denzel. We're
0: doing it again, we're talking about other films. (laughs) Back
1: to to Die Hard, back to Die Hard.
0: (laughs) 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 I think we weren't talking about the film we're supposed to be talking about. I think I might (laughs) leave all of those bits in just to show how not much of a match this film
1: is. (laughs) This is the thing it is
0: a bog standard action movie, and that's it. It literally is bog standard. Standard of a bog. When John gives the scrambled radio to Dulles Communications Director Leslie Barnes, he says, this is a six-digit code. There could be a million combinations. Well, Communications Director of Dulles Airport Leslie Barnes, the Grade C at GCSE math wizard is here to tell you that there's no could about it. Six digits means that there are precisely one million combinations if we're counting 000, 000, zero, 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 zero which I wouldn't put it past these bozos to be using
1: and that probably was the code <laughs> 1, 2, no no three, no, no it's zero, 0 1, 2,
0: 3 that's amazing that's just kind of combination an idiot would have on his luggage
1: <laughs> might be to change the combination on my luggage nice
0: ok so I'm done with Die Hard 2 let's talk about Die Hard in video games because we can talk about the home releases when we talk about Die Hard 3 because there is a specific thing that relates to that especially if you're outside America so, uh, Die Hard and video games. There was Die Hard on the NES and then the MS-DOS system.
1: Don't remember those.
0: Um, a Die Hard 1 on the NES. Well, I mean, obviously, since all NES owners should have seen Die Hard being 8, um, the, it was like a top-down <laughs> shooter puzzle type thing. I don't know.
1: Well, the best thing is, right, so you just made that joke about the fact NES owners are 8 and there was a Die Hard video game. There was a Nightmare on Elm Street video game. Oh, God, there was.
0: I mean movies were pretty pervasive in those you know that bit in The Wedding Singer we're doing it again (laughs) uh, that kid comes in and he's wearing a Freddy Krueger mask and glove I'm like yeah you know what even at four or five years old that is the sort of thing that would happen back in the 80s because kids were allowed to you know sort of revel in these awful awful like 18 rated what R rated movies Die Hard 2 on the Amiga it is a crosshair Operation Wolf style shooter
1: meh (laughs) Can we talk about the PlayStation 1?
0: Yeah, we're getting there. Die Hard Arcade, first, on the Saturn and Arcade units, is a nonsensical brawler, (laughs) which basically stars you as a man with brown non-receding hair and a blue police jacket, who starts off on the bottom floor of the Nakatomi Plaza and fights his way all the way to the top, beating up everybody in between. Okay. I'm assuming... I, I never got to the top, but when you get to the end, I'm assuming you beat up Hans Gruber. You're supposed. I think you're supposed to be John McClane, but anyway. Die Hard Trilogy on the PS1. See,
1: now, this, this is, is what I we're about. I the big Die Hard game.
0: Yeah, because, of course, we. You, know, you were 82, weren't you? So you'd have been, uh, what, 15 when this came out? Maybe a bit yeah. younger? About right. Yeah. I actually had
1: it. I quite liked it.
0: Yes, it, it was good. It was the first good Die Hard game, and actually, looking at the list of what went on, it's the only good Die Hard game. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, so if I remember correctly, it was Die Hard Trilogy. The first Die Hard one in that game was sort of this weird... It uh, was a sort of a, a, th- a third-person shooter, if mm, I remember correctly. Yeah,
0: I mean, not this entirely dissimilar to, say, Syphon Filter. A little bit more viewed from above, but yeah. Very, very jagged frame rate, and uh, you, you went from one floor to the next, dispatching everybody on that floor, and then you got to go to the next floor. Again, It was you were murdering everybody on your path. There were no hostages. It was just floor after floor of
1: terrorists. If I remember correctly, the second one was sort of a light gun game. Yep. Uh,
0: which did actually use a light gun, not just a, a pad.
1: Which, again, no one played, and I think the best
0: I one was the It was quite good. The th- yeah, but the third one was the best.
1: The third one was basically <laughs> driving around in a car.
0: Somewhat bending the, uh, the plot of the original <laughs> Die Hard with a Vengeance, but yeah, you drive around in a car and then quite often a taxi, and you had to find bombs placed around the city and ram into them. Just like in real
1: life. And I bet everybody did this. If you went through the park stage, you all said this. Are you trying to hit these people? No. Ah. Maybe that's mine.
4: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I didn't say through Park Avenue. I said through the park. Yeah. It was. I did it have someone who sounded a bit like Samuel L. Jackson shouting in your ear all the time, going McClane.
4: <laughs> we we'll have to look up that. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: Die Hard with a Vengeance. What a film. Okay. but it was great fun and um, as a diehard game it wasn't exactly accurate but um, I mean you know it, it was three relatively so- I mean two and a half relatively solid uh, game styles uh, one of
1: I remember it being one of the most popular titles on the Xbox, uh, the yeah. Xbox sorry on the PS1 it went
0: platinum Definitely, yeah. Uh,
1: I think what, one of the main things
0: that held back all of the Die Hard video games is that Bruce Willis has never allowed his likeness to be used in Die Hard video games. He was in Apocalypse, as I recall, uh, but, for example, in the Fifth Element video game, which was rubbish, they could never show Bruce Willis' face, so they had clips from the movie, but they couldn't actually show Corbin. They showed his hands when he was starting up the cab, but Bruce Willis is very touchy about his face, same as Tom Cruise.
1: That's actually probably a good thing. Because at least then he's not appeared in crappy video games. Uh,
0: but that also means he's not been in good video games. If, for example, you'd had Bruce Willis's face and bits of the Die Hard trilogy in Die Hard trilogy on the PlayStation One, that would have been so much better. Even you know, I think it would have been. It would have felt a lot more authentic but you, you've never really... Here's the thing. None of these games really achieve what they're supposed to be doing, which is you never really feel like McClane because he is so definitely twinned with Willis. Even even Willis doesn't look like McClane in Die Hard 4.
1: That's true. I mean, a Die Hard game should be pretty much almost like, say, the early Splinter Cell games where you hmm. happen to be stealthy.
0: Yeah, or Uncharted with a lot more stealth. I, uh,
1: I can only remember one more Die Hard game.
0: Oh, there's, there's uh, four more, actually.
1: I, thought, I know there's is it Die Hard Nakatomi Tower oh no hang on
0: there's there's three more there's uh, uh, the Die Hard Trilogy 2 Viva Las Vegas on the PS1 and PC which uh, in that it was a brand new Die Hard story nothing to do with the existing Die Hard Trilogy and just one story shouldn't have been called Die Hard Trilogy it should just have been called Die Hard Viva Las Vegas nah. yeah uh, again driving, shooting action also shooting <laughs> Apparently not not as good. Uh, Then, as you say, yeah, Nakatomi Plaza on the PC. Looked like it was using the Half-Life engine. Wasn't, but actually, of all of these games, probably the most interesting. It set you up in the Nakatomi Plaza. You had various... It had similar-sounding music, and not at all similar-sounding McLean. But the guy who played Al came back and did uh, voice duties on that. It looked like a very cheap game, though. And then there's Die Hard Vendetta on the GameCube which is as good as every other GameCube FPS.
1: Seeing as I've never played a GameCube <laughs> FPS, I'm I not saying anything. Neither no, have I. Just, I. <laughs> the, the, look, I only played a few games on the GameCube. The Resident Evils mm. and the Wing Commanders. Not the Wing Commanders, sorry, the Rogue, Rogue Squadron? and yeah. Rogue Leader?
0: Well, at this point, if anybody <laughs> was uh, <laughs> saying to me, I'm going to make a diehard game, I would say, do you have Bruce Willis's face and, even better, voice? No. Well, don't bother, then. It's that simple. Don't bother making Die Hard without Bruce Willis.
1: Ah, uh, how we wish they said they 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 said just don't bother when it came to Die Hard 4. Yeah.
0: Mm. Absolutely. He wants what? to do, he wants <laughs> to do two more.
1: Oh god. Right, uh
0: anything else on Die Hard? 2 Die Harder.
1: What a crappy tagline.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I thought they were <laughs> sitting around in an office drinking coffee going, "Oh, I don't know, we need, we need to give it a, t- a subtitle just two is not good enough
1: the worst crime in this movie, did, movie is did they have to call it Back to
0: the Future Part 2 the future yeah. back, back, even backer <laughs> forward forwarder no. I don't know it doesn't make any sense Back to the Future Part 2 forward back back again <laughs>
4: that's the thing though
1: I mean, you, Back to the Future Part you, 3
4: way back
1: <laughs> about this movie it's worst crime is it being by the numbers it's not too good but it's not too bad it's not Die Hard 4
4: mm.
1: but it's not Die Hard it's not Die Hard with the Vengeance well see I, I kind of think it is
0: Die Hard 4 but it has enough hallmarks of the original Die Hard that we kind of forgive it like I said there's, there's like seven things that are present in, in Die Hard 2 uh, which if you remove John McTiernan and a good script it still kind of feels like Die Hard it does a good impression of die hard it's just die hard four doesn't concern itself with that and so there is there is no sense of
1: magic trick can we just talk about how he saves the day at the end of the movie
0: yeah i was going to but uh yeah at this point we usually talk about what a brilliant finale the movie has but it kind of doesn't
1: go for it (laughs) he you know he's fighting on the wing he gets he manages not one person into an engine which is Kind of cool. Awesome. Then then he gets kicked off the wing, and on his way down, manages to grab the emergency fuel release. Yeah, that thing. And then saves the day, basically, by rolling over and dropping the cigarette lighter while delivering the catchphrase and saving the day.
0: Yeah. But... At that point, it's not relevant to the situation and it doesn't play on any kind of words or cultural reference and besides, nobody can hear him. It's his catchphrase because everybody remembers it from the original movie even though it's not relevant at the time.
1: Yeah, and he literally... Not only does he save the day because he he drops the light, obviously the fuel catches fire, chases up with the plane, goes into the engine, boom, plane explodes. Then all the other planes circling above somehow magically use the trail of fire and the big explosion to land.
3: <laughs> there's well, a point. Not
1: landing in the middle of the wreckage that would have been
3: left because yeah. all there is is a bit of burning petrol, apparently.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> why did they not try that method when the other plane ploughed into the runway earlier?
0: Um, they didn't have time. There's a bit where uh, they, they're looking out at him with binoculars and they go, Someone's out there. My God, it's McLean. And, like, you know, he's doing his sort of jumping up and down. Actually, at that point, there's this awesome bit where. Um, they, uh, it's like somebody who's messing with the computers goes, I'm going to raise the ground level to 200 metres below sea level. And then immediately afterwards, someone on the control tower goes, my God, he's raised the ground level to 200 metres below sea level. Just in case you didn't know it, folks, this is what he's done.
1: And Actually, it's a foreshadowing diehard for, isn't it, with the whole computers we can change things and no one will actually notice. No. Oh.
4: <laughs>
0: I, t- I just think when they when they um they know it's very foggy right they know there's snow terrible weather conditions they're going in very carefully and very slowly um, and then the runway appears and the, do you remember what their reactions are ah! and then they shield their faces and go no You'd think an experienced pilot would be expecting the the runway to be, you know, either much closer or much further away, and would be, you know, bearing down in a very kind of safe way, so he'd be like, shit, and he'd pull the sticks back, but not too hard, and he'd just attempt to get in, and not just squeal like a little bitch, and then go (laughs) completely to pieces. It would have been... Slightly less galling, possibly for my father, if he'd gone, <laughs> right, I'm going to do the British stiff upper lip thing and dry my absolute damnedest.
3: Well, this is the problem with the entire film. So uh, the first film was there was a few bits of, of action, nonsense, thrown but mostly it was it was fairly gritty and realistic. Whereas this there's just so much nonsense going on mm-hmm. I mean the whole bit with the, the ejection seat where he's trapped in the plane yeah, oh, yeah those, the, grenades
0: those grenades in. have got the it's longest fuses he's, of he's any he's, grenades they
3: blow up after he's eject blown an ejection seat yeah. which that plane wouldn't have being a transport
0: plane Is it a, it's a Hercules isn't it <laughs> I have no idea whether it was it's, it's, okay. like, it's, it's, it's something it, like that yeah. if you're in aviation folks work to us tell us if there's an ejector seat <laughs>
1: I suppose there is a great moment in this movie where um Rots of space gets tasered. That was kind of fun. I enjoyed yeah, that
0: bit. Uh, poor thing. Limped for a month. It, just, it seems like weirdly suicidal on Dick's part. It's like he's he's uh, yeah he creates massive amounts of panic by broadcasting this information. He doesn't even think for a second maybe this will somehow scupper my chances of landing safely. <laughs> he's mental. Lockheed C-130 Hercules. Absolutely jam-packed with ejector seats, apparently. Yes. <laughs> Every seat on this plane is an ejector seat, <laughs> and they can all be triggered uh, from the
3: cockpit. Ah. There's also the the uh, 747, that, or the, the passenger liner that they uh, the terrorists finally escape on, hmm. that conveniently has its windows painted shut, so they don't notice the <laughs> There's a there's a man on the wing. Oh no, the windows are painted over. Why the fuck are they painted over? Exactly. This makes no sense at all. <sighs> but, you know, it, obviously, there's just so much stuff jammed in there to try and make the film mm. a bit more big and a bit more. I mean, they uh, twenty thousand dollars a minute. This film was costing at one point. Oh yeah, it's actually, thank you for bringing in thousand dollars a minute, minute every minute of every day. What a waste. <laughs> And it made $117 million. That's the, that's the really scary thing. But it does show that throwing money at a film, while it might make it successful, doesn't necessarily make it better. Because Die Hard had a smaller budget. It was a much better film. You know?
1: Well, you only so, need to look at The Pirates of the Caribbean 2 and 3 to realise if you throw money, it doesn't make it better. Yeah, yeah. The prequel trilogy. <laughs> 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 yeah.
4: yeah. This is,
1: we've done that. We've been there.
4: Yeah.
0: In fact, I, I say that for... Uh, actually, no, because that doesn't work either. If you reduce the budget, you get straight to video shite, because none of the actors turn up
4: for it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, okay, keep the budget exactly the same. It's the only <laughs> way. <laughs> Do more with this.
1: Just get a uh, sometimes it's the right combination of director and script. I mean, like we said, this isn't a bad movie. Mm. It's just not a good or great movie. Yeah. No, I mean it, it does enough. It does enough
3: stuff that isn't just by the numbers scene for scene mm. sequel stuff to make it worth watching. And you could even, I mean, I, I watched Die Hard two not long after I watched Die Hard mm-hmm. um, just before Christmas. Yeah, you know, it was a couple of days, and it's it's you know it was fine. I didn't have a problem watching it, but it just isn't as good you know the, the one line is some of them are very good another basement another elevator how can the same shit happen to the same guy twice mm. which is probably the same
1: <laughs> the Same shit same guy twice is perhaps one of the best quotes in that movie mm. it's a great line and then when he ejects out of the fucking plane in, against all yeah.
3: sense and physics and design of planes and he then lands and gets buried by his parachute and says... "It's the fucking Let's... door? Which is the worst line I've heard
0: in yeah. a long time. It's awful. Uh, well, actually, I suppose, get lost, you pinko bitch, is probably worse.
4: <laughs>
0: From that guy <laughs> at the beginning, say, spook- speaking very... Everyone's rude to that poor reporter. I mean, I know she's a vulture, but they're so rude to her. <laughs> Uh, and then there's that bit where uh, he, he jumps up on the inside of the elevator, goes through the uh, hatch, and then the, the doors open and the renter cops outside go, where's McLean? And she goes, claustrophobic, I guess. And they come in and go, "Huh?" and they look around. It's like, dude, it, there's no stops in between there and the tower. He's gone up through the hatch. I could have told you that. And I was eight when I saw this.
1: Well, this, is, this actually is an important fact, right? If you watch most movies, not mm-hmm. every movie, but most movies, no one looks up. Ever. It's true.
0: It's even in Kill Bill.
1: They even do it in Aliens thinking about it. They don't look up till it's too late. Yeah,
0: in the Alien. Yeah, Alien's like no, wait, wait, wait. I'll wait till he looks at me and then I'll go, Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's <laughs> not It's not scary enough yet. No, wait, 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 wait. Okay, got him. <laughs> and <there> all <was, laughs> the Alien's friends are going, yeah, that was excellent.
5: Colonel Stewart, can we have a few words, please?
0: You
2: can have two. Jilt and you. No pictures,
4: you pinko. Hey, come
5: on, let me ask you something.
3: What sets off the metal detectors
5: first? The lead in your head or the junk in your brains. Fat freak. Hey, McLean, I got a first-class unit here, SWAT team and all. We don't need any Monday morning quarterbacks. Hey, forget Monday morning. My wife saw one of those damn planes these guys are fooling with. That puts me on the playing field. And if you'd have moved your fat feet when I told you to, we wouldn't be hip-deep in snow right now. All right, Dad, security. I'm hauling yeah. out of here, and you rocking the boat. Connection? Come on, McLean, just a few words. Okay, just a few words. Joe, off. Oh, we are just up to our neck and terrorists again, John. Well, maybe they're just a little bit more creative than you think. Well, at least I'm thinking damn damn it. Listen, you wise guy. We're here to service that hijack, I that, sir. <laughs> I was wrong about you. You're not such a rascal after all.
0: No, oh, you were right. Just look kind of rascal? Rascal? Seriously, rascal? Is he 98 years old? Yippee-ki-yay, mister Falcon. Worst Bruce Willis impersonation ever. And that was the dub. Finlandia is a symphonic poem by Finnish composer John Sibelius. The first version was written in 1899 and was revised in 1900. The piece was composed for the press celebrations of 1899, a covert protest against increasing censorship from the Russian Empire. As the last of seven pieces, each performed as an accompaniment to a tableau depicting episodes from Finnish history. And it just happens to be the uh, music that uh, keeps turning up in Die
4: Hard
1: 2. I was going to say, what the heck's this got to do with Die Hard 2?
0: It's uh, in the same way as um, Michael Kamen was riffing on com- uh, Christmas music, and uh, so it Let It Snow, and then uh, the music from uh, other stuff. Ode
1: to Joy.
0: Uh, yeah, an ode to Joy, yes. And, of course, uh, Beethoven in the original Die Hard. Uh, he went for jo- Jean Sibelius's Finlandia for this one. Uh, in a similar fashion to Beethoven's Ninth in the first one. And of course it finishes again on Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let it Snow and we can't finish on that one because we've already done that. So I'm going to play the uh, Finlandia tribute, uh, which plays bass pretty much almost, yeah, it, it, it's it's not even Michael Kamen's music. This is literally Finlandia, um, which plays at the end when uh, McLean gets all those planes down. In the meantime, Neil, do you want to pimp your
1: show? You can find me over at Gameburst at Gameburst.co.uk. Mm.
0: And very good it is as well, especially your Christmas quiz.
1: You even turned up in the outtake show, sir.
0: Yeah, I know. And I was like, oh, wow, there's me with my uh, not quite able to get things right first time. And that's why I edit that shit out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we showed you up, sir.
0: I'm sorry. Okay, right. So yeah, that's it. Die Hard 2 finishes and everyone goes, ah, that was all right.
1: Yeah. yeah. Not too bad. Not too good.
0: It didn't really seem like the sort of movie that would get a third one, and then so when the third one came out, obviously I was a kid at the time, so uh, I, w- I wasn't really massively surprised. I, in fact, I hadn't really even seen Die Hard until that point, so it, three was the one that got me into the Die Hard series. So, uh, and I'm really looking forward to talking about that one because oh, yes. uh, uh, of the uh, of the two of the four films, I would buy one and three on Blu-ray.
1: Definitely. They, they are the ones you want, indeed. Mm. We would be happy if The Die Hard wasn't a quadrilogy. Quadri- it wasn't four.
0: I call it just a quad sod quadrilogy. It's a made up word.
1: Alright. If it wasn't <laughs> a quad, if it was just two movies and it was Die Hard yeah. and Die Hard with a Vengeance. We're but
0: I, I kind of like the fact that Die Hard 4 exists now because it means I'm not obligated to get the entire trilogy on Blu ray. I can be like, hey, you know what? I'll, I'll miss this one out.
1: <laughs> there you go Die World 4 has a purpose after yeah. all it, it, it allows you to take <laughs>
0: to things. same as uh, Superman 4 you're just like you know what it's not like a, a, a good first two films and then a bad third one it's two of them that are worth ignoring so fuck it same with
1: the Batman films no you just need to buy Batman Begins and Dark Knight because um, others do not exist
0: I'll be buying the Alien Quad and tossing away Alien
1: Resurrection <laughs> <laughs> The only bit of work Josh Whedon should be thoroughly ashamed of.
0: Always bring that up. Oh, poor Josh. Hasn't he bled enough for you? No. <laughs> Didn't make butchery script anyway. I, I believe so, yeah. Very shilling. Things. Well, the hallmarks are there. It's a crew of, I mean, effectively, the crew of Firefly, only you don't yes. care about or like any of them. Anyway, all that leads back to <laughs> Die Hard 2. Die Hard <laughs>
1: Or, Die Hard 2, we can't be buggered to talk about it.
0: (laughs) In all seriousness, folks, I will try not to do episodes in the future where we talk about a film that we just can't make. For example, here's the thing. Predator 2, are we going to talk about it?
1: Yes, because I actually like that one. Okay. Okay. I actually prefer that one to the first one.
0: What the (laughs) fuck? Okay, to be continued, folks. <laughs> After we've smacked me in the head. Know, he's perfectly touched to his opinion, but I, I do need to call the folks at Bedlam, because I think we may have a mentalist on our
3: hands. <laughs> so you've been asked. him. wrong opinion, except that one, which is...
0: <laughs> cool. I, I, liked, I did like Predator 2. I mean, it, was, it was... I mean, yeah, I like it too, What's but it? it's, it's kind it? of like Die Hard 2 in that it's sort of just there. Yeah, but it's not... Predator's awesome I mean, The scorpion is ready <laughs> Do you know what I think happens Shit happens Want some candy Ah oh, great film Predator 2 <laughs> Anyway <laughs> Die Hard 2 Die Hard <laughs> Directed by Renny Harlan This is Finlandia I've been Alex
1: I've been Neil Taylor And I've been Matt Ramsey
0: and thank you again for coming on, Matt. It's uh, it's great to have you on, actually. This uh, you you lend an air of class to us. Otherwise, just bumbling <laughs> podcasters just going through the motions. And uh, that's it. Happy trails.
5: Yeah.